Well, this morning we are starting uh, a new series um, in the life of our church on the book of Hebrews. And you might wonder, why, why Hebrews? Well, after our time in Judges, uh, I thought it might be nice to do something a bit more positive. <laughs> no, seriously, after our time in Judges and all the failed and inadequate saviours that we saw there, Let's come and focus together on Jesus, who is our, our true and you know, effective saviour. And also, too, Hebrews, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware, has lots of connection to the Old Testament. So as we go through it, we realise that this is, this is one book with one God across its pages. There's not the Old Testament God and then the New Testament God. It's all the one God. It's all the one story. And so we're reminded of that as we, as we do that. We'll also see some of our our judges as we get later on in the book. And the other reason, I think, is to say, you know, let's focus less, as we come together as the church, together as God's people, to focus less on our world and in our circumstances and all of that, and to focus again on him who is greater, in him, to focus on him who has overcome the world. And so that's why, that's why Hebrews. And as a side thing, ideally through this series, we would run the coffee cart just by, with just men, but you, you, yeah, it'll, it'll sink in. Just think about that one for a while. Unfortunately, we don't have enough guys on the coffee team, but Hebrews, just for, for those who, who weren't getting it. Yeah, dad joke. That's appropriate, really, isn't it? Hey, a couple of other things just to let you know about. This Tuesday just gone, the, the social and the craft group got off to, to a great start. Um, there's also then a, a women's Bible study that Bible study that started up on, on Friday mornings again from 10 a.m. for anyone who's interested. There's no childcare at this point, but, but that's there and, and is um, something that's available. And I feel like there's another thing I was meant to say. Yes. There was. Um, you might have seen as you came in, there's barbecue out the front. That's not just for decoration. That's because after the service, uh, we are having a barbecue together. So what, what speaks more to a man's heart than sausages on a barbie? So I think that's the theory of it. Um, or maybe it's just the first Sunday of the month and we thought we'd do a barbecue. Either way, um, that's happening. So if you're able to, stick around and um, we'll fellowship together over that. You might notice this morning that David's not here. Um, he's absent this morning because he's across at, at Albury Baptist today in support of their pastor, Grant Redmond. He's not there preaching. He's not there. He's kind of not doing anything, apart, as I understand it, apart from just being a presence there. Because five years ago, on Father's Day, Grant started his ministry at Albury Baptist. And today he's announcing his retirement um, from that, which will take effect at, at the end of the year. So David's just gone in solidarity and support. And um, there's a word that I'm looking for that I can't... He's having a day off. I'm sure he's still working really hard, Terry. Maybe not as hard as I am having to deal with you, but you know, that's, that's fine. Um, <laughs> love you, Terry. <laughs> um, in terms of Aubrey Baptist, as, as Grant retires, just putting it out there too that, that as a church we'll support them as appropriate in this transition as we have in the past uh, and, and yeah, we'll, we'll figure out how that looks as things go, go forward. 
So just letting you know about that, and that's where David is, and we can keep Aubrey Baptist in our prayers uh, at this time. I want to invite Kylie up to uh, read the scriptures for us. So this morning we are reading from Hebrews chapter 1. So if you've got a Bible there, get that open, and um, Kylie will share that with us. Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things through his powerful word. After he has provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, When God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Thank you. Thanks, Carly. Let's pray. God, having heard your word, We come now with anticipation and with expectation that you will speak to us in it and through it. Um, We pray that we will see Christ revealed to us, the Christ who we've already remembered and celebrated through sharing communion, but, but even more so than now, God, as we come to your word that reveals him so clearly to us. And we pray then, God, in seeing Jesus, that we'll be changed, that we'll be impacted, that we'll be transformed, to be more how you call us to be as your people. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Matthew 14, Peter walks on water. Now, we're all familiar with the fact that Jesus does that. I mean, it's a standard Jesus thing that he walks on water. But in just this one account in the Gospels, he's not alone. 
Peter also gets out of the boat and he too walks on the water towards Jesus. And what had happened, for context, is Jesus had sent the disciples on ahead of him while, while he went up a mountainside by himself to spend some time in prayer. And then later that night, the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And so the, the disciples were struggling, struggling against the wind and the waves while Jesus was, was alone on the land. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Now, understandably, seeing this, they were, they were freaked out. I mean, seriously, who has ever seen anyone walk on water? They, they thought he was a ghost. And, and so Jesus had to reassure them that it was him. And then Peter, and I really don't know the logic behind this, Peter says to him, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus does. I reckon it would have been funny if it wasn't Jesus just to see what would have happened. To say, yeah, sure, give it a shot. But so, like I said, I don't understand Peter's logic. But he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And, and Jesus does. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Peter, with Jesus before him, walks on the water, which is incredible. We have no idea of what that experience was like for him. But then, feeling the wind buffeting him, seeing the waves that, that are being kicked up by that wind, he, he began to freak out. And he took his eyes off Jesus and looked then at what was going on around him and he began to sink. Well, I think the, the, the Christians that the letter to the Hebrews was written to were going through a, a similar experience. I mean, sure, they weren't collectively trying to walk on water, but they were, they were in their own storm. The writer reminds them of, of their days when you endured in great conflict, full of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. These, these Christians experienced persecution from Rome who were, who were targeting Christians as troublemakers and, and this kind of unapproved religious sect. And they were experiencing persecution from Israel, from other Jews who challenged their faith in Jesus as the Messiah and so then were ostracizing them from the community. And it's into these winds and these waves that a word of exhortation comes, reminding them that they have an anchor for the soul that is firm and secure and so calling them to fix their thoughts on Jesus. And behind this encouragement to consider Jesus in this way is this conviction that Jesus is greater. And maybe that's the encouragement you need to hear today too. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than COVID, than lockdowns, than governments. Jesus is greater than wars, than famines, than floods. He's greater than our upbringing, possessions, or relationships. Greater than our fear, our pain, our struggles. Greater than our past, our present, our future. 
Jesus is greater. And you can fill in your own blank, whatever it is, Jesus is greater. And while the book of Hebrews may not address any of those things kind of specifically, yet it addresses them all because it holds up before us Jesus and showing us all the ways in which he is greater, the ways in which he is bigger, better, superior. And the more that we can grasp a hold of that fact, then the more secure we can be. And the fact that we don't really know specifically who this letter was written to, nor do we know who it was written by, nor do we really know when it was written or where it got sent to, all of that allows us perhaps a greater freedom to appropriate its truths more for ourselves, to to universalize it, if you like, to our experience. And so let's dive in to this text and to see what it has to say to us. It starts with this overall declaration of the greatness of Jesus, how he is greater than or superior to anyone or anything else. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets and at many times in in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, this son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, and so he became as much superior to the angels as the name that he inherited is superior to theirs. The writer starts with this affirmation that God speaks to his people. And he does so in, you know, in, in many ways and at various times. And he writes about this in a, in a historical sense, that this is what God has done in the past. But then he shifts to the present to say that God has spoken again. And this time, he's not spoken through a prophet, but he has spoken through his son. The, the sense is that Jesus is the premier and the definitive revelation from God. I mean, Jesus, we know from from John 1, is the Word of God, the Word made flesh and making His dwelling among us as one of us. Jesus then is a a greater Word, a greater revelation of God, as is borne out as the writer continues. This Word is given expression by the Son, and so, so right off the bat, Jesus is declared to be more than just a good teacher, more than just a good man, more than just a prophet, more than just a leader, more than any of those things. He is God's son, which means that he is greater than any who have come before him or any who will come after him. And as evidence of this, the writer says that he has been made heir of all things, indicating his destiny in the future when literally all things, and that's a very inclusive term, Everything is included within all things will come to him and will come under him. And more though than just what's coming to him, the Son is also the means by which God made the universe in the first place. This is his role in the past. As John writes, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Well, likewise, Paul says, for in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or or authorities, 
all things have been created through him and for him. I mean, we are two verses into this letter. And we already have a clear sense of just the supremacy and the greatness of Jesus, the Son of God. And so to these Christians facing conflicts from from within and from without who are wavering in their faith, they are shown a mighty Jesus. But wait, there's more. I should say too, but before getting to that more, all of this paragraph that that we're working through, all these verses are just one long and full sentence in in the original Greek. It's like he just got on on a roll considering the sun and he couldn't pause for just mundane things like commas and full stops. He was just just in in the flow of it. And so we get to this incredible phrase that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. In Exodus 33, Moses asks of God to see his glory and God responds to say that I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So there's this sense then that God's glory is equivalent to all of his, all of his goodness and all of his character and all of his nature. And it's so glorious, um, God tells Moses then, that no one can see it full on face to face and live. It is just so overwhelming, so majestic. And yet when Moses came down from the mountain, his own face shone with a reflected light of God's glory. So much so that then his fellow Israelites were terrified of him and were scared to come near him because of what he just reflected. And so then we read here that Jesus is this radiance, reflecting and expressing all of the glorious character of God. Which makes sense then for, for him to be described as the exact representation of his being. And this is referring to, to the die that would stamp an image onto a coin. Jesus perfectly expresses the, the image and the likeness of God. All the attributes of God become visible in him. So that if we want to know what God is like, we just need to look to Jesus. He is the exact representation of the being of God because he is God. And as God, Jesus then has not only created all things, but we're now told that he sustains all things by the power of his word. And so to struggling Christians, I mean, this speaks powerfully to them. If the Son can sustain creation in all of its absolute and increasing vastness, then to uphold them, man, he can do that easy. Next, then, we're told what will be a theme throughout the book, that Jesus provided purification for for sins, uh, which we've remembered as we've shared in communion together this morning. Now, there was an established system in place to cleanse people of their sins. But here's the thing that shows the greatness of Jesus when we look at it here. After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down. Now, later in the book, we'll come to a description of the work of the priests who day after day stand to perform their duties and offer sacrifices. But Jesus... He did it one time, and he sat down. Job done. Nothing more to do. 
it is finished. And he didn't just plonk himself down wherever, like, you know, exhausted after the end of a hard day's work. It's like, Ugh. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's enthroned in heaven in a place of special honor, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So, so Roman emperors, and the thought is that it's Nero specifically at this time. Roman emperors might be persecuting this new Christian movement. Jewish leaders might be declaring it a heresy and, and ostracizing its followers. But Jesus is greater because he's the greatest. He's at the right hand of the Father. And the writer then concludes this sentence by declaring that Jesus is as superior to angels as the name that he has is greater than theirs. This is an introduction to the, to the next section of the chapter where Old Testament scripture after Old Testament scripture is used to compare Jesus to angels and to demonstrate consistently how he is greater than them. But right here in, in this verse, verse 4, he compares their names, which reveals their essential nature. An angel, angel means messenger. And that's compared messenger to son. They are worlds apart. And Jesus is the one who has the far greater name. And this, this name reflects his being, that he's far greater than even angels. Now pause and think about this for a moment. Think of the angel encounters that, that come to mind that take place within the scriptures. I think every time that they appear, they have to say, don't be afraid. Because obviously, they're terrifying. They are messengers of God. And often they are mistaken for the, for the being of God, as if they're God himself. They are just that majestic and that powerful and that you know, outside of the realm of their ex people's experience. People fall face down before angels as if they are dead because the very presence of the angels is just so overpowering for them. Angels defeat and deter armies. They are, you know, not chubby-cheeked toddlers that have wings, but they are powerful, glorious, mighty beings who dwell in the presence of God and so, like Moses did, reflect that glory. They are spectacular. They are without equal or without compare. But the sun is greater. And this is proved time and again in way after way in what follows. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. You know, as impressive as angels are, which one did God ever say, You're my son? And the answer to these rhetorical questions is none. No angel ever had that. They are, they are just in a different and a lesser category. There is only one son, Jesus, who has a greater name than the angels. The writer goes on then with another quotation. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says that all God's angels worship him. Now think about this. I mean, angels who just by their very being 
prompt the worship of men and women and who have to be stopped from offering it to them, these same angels worship Jesus. You don't worship something that's lesser than you. That makes no, that makes no sense. But the angels worship Jesus, saying that he clearly is worthy of a far greater honor, far greater worth, far greater adoration, far greater worship than they are. And Jesus also has a greater status and nature than the angels. In speaking of the angels, he says he makes them his he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by now anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says that in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They'll be changed, but you remain the same and your years will never end. Angels are messengers and servants, we read. But the Son is the sovereign God who rules over all for eternity. Angels do the bidding of God. But the Son is the God who commands them. Angels, for all their glory, are creatures, but the Son is the one who created them. And so the Son is set above them all, greater than them, in His very being. And He will always be so. He is the unchanging Christ. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so the chapter concludes, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now only one person can sit at the right hand of God. And that position is taken by Jesus. And it's under his feet that any other power or authority will submit. It is at the name of Jesus that every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue confess, every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so while angels may serve us, they cannot save us. Only Jesus can. We see repeatedly in every way Jesus is greater than the angels. He's God's word, God's son, God's heir. He is creator and sustainer, the glory of God and his perfect revelation. He is the full and the complete means of salvation and he's in the place of highest honor. He is prophet, priest and king. Further, he is greater than the angels in his name and in his title, in his honor, in his status and role, in his being, in his rule and his reign and in salvation. And this is just the first chapter of the letter. Again and again, we will see Jesus is greater. And this is not just some abstract theoretical bit of information. This is not 
you know, fun Bible fact to pull out at Bible trivia. This is not just, you know, a bit of knowledge to store away. This is something that shapes how we live. For these early Christians, in the midst of persecution, in the face of doubt and questions, knowing that Jesus was greater was a truth that they absolutely needed to grasp onto in order for them to continue on. Let's come back to the, Peter, to the story of Peter. When we left him, he was beginning to sink, crying out that Jesus would save him. And immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Peter, I think, illustrates all that we've been talking about. The wind and the waves, they start to overwhelm him. The, The storm around him leads him to take his eyes off Jesus. And Jesus gently chides him. Why did you doubt? Why did you let what was going on around you rob you of your faith and your trust in me? Why did you think that this storm was bigger than me? and bigger than what I can do. Think about it. Here is Jesus walking on water. This is the same Jesus who Peter has seen heal a man of leprosy, cast out demons, heal a paralyzed man, raise a dead girl back to life. It's the same Jesus he's seen restore sight and hearing and to feed 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, from just a couple of loaves of bread. Why did you doubt? And Peter and the other disciples are reminded of all this as Jesus gets into the boat with them and the wind and the waves, they cease. They recognize that Jesus is greater and they worship. The story of Peter... And the writers of the Hebrews call us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Nothing that is going on around us or within us is greater than he is. And the way to face whatever we're going through is through faith in him. Yes, we may sink a little, but he will joyfully lift us up. He is right there ready to act. He is the rock that is higher than we are. He's the one that angels worship. He's the one who creates and sustains the universe. He is the one sitting in majesty in heaven. He is the one who is with us and for us. He is greater because he is the greatest. So let's pray to him. Oh, Jesus having studied this this chapter this morning, we are beginning to get a glimpse, beginning to get a taste of all the ways in which you are greater. Jesus, I pray that our minds, yes, but our hearts and our lives and our faith has been expanded as we've had this vision of you held before us from the scriptures, a vision of you that is just so much greater than anyone, anything 
And may the truth and the reality of who you are and of your greatness, Jesus, may that sink deep in our lives. May that impact us profoundly so that it's not, so that unlike Peter, we don't get caught up and distracted by the storm around us and the struggles that we have. But instead, our eyes stay on you and all your greatness, all your glory, all of who you are and of what you have done. And that then you carry us through and sustain us through it all. In whatever we face, you are faithful and true. You are with us. You are ready and willing to lift us back up. And so may we not stray from you. May we not doubt. May we not look away. But in the midst of everything, however hard it may be, keep our eyes on Jesus. May we consider him who is greater. And you carry us through. We pray this then in Jesus' name. Amen.